Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying the end of 2019. I know that I'm not alone in wondering where the year has gone. It feels like yesterday that I was planning out 2019's goals and what I wanted to achieve. I guess time flies when you're having fun. If you're like me in the Northern Hemisphere dealing with the snow and the ice and the cold, which I'm not ever going to get used to, uh, I hope you're enjoying some easier training or some indoor workouts. And for everyone back home in Australia, I hope you're enjoying the lovely sunny days. Today's guest is Louise Burke, a fellow Aussie, and she's been the head of sports nutrition at the Australian Institute of Sports since 1990 uh, and has over 30 years experience working directly with the world's best athletes and coaches. Her research includes post-exercise recovery, carbohydrate and fat metabolism during exercise and fluid needs in sport. Her understanding and knowledge in the realm of carbohydrate fueling and utilization is game-changing and has directly resulted in multiple Olympic medals. In fact, any athlete with goals to increase their performance can benefit from Louise's work. When she speaks, people listen, and that was definitely the case when I got to spend a morning with her in New York following her participation in the New York Marathon earlier in November. Having grown up in Australia, I was excited to meet Louise. Her books on sports nutrition grace bookshelves across the country. I remember growing up and cooking from her books. And in fact, my parents use recipes from her books to this day, 20 years later. Louise was so gracious with her time. We got to spend a few hours together following the interview, reminiscing about Australia and talking about our many mutual connections. I got a lot of tips and ideas from Louise about how to fuel my training and racing ambitions for 2020 during the interview, and I know you will too. A special shout out and thank you to Julia and the team from Unit Nutrition for bringing Louise and I together. I hope you enjoy this episode of Inner Voice with Travis McKenzie. Well, I feel very, very privileged uh, to be sitting here with Louise Burke right now, and it's quite surreal. I don't know if you ever have these moments of how did I get here, but we're sitting in New York. I remember growing up, um, I had the survival for the fittest and from the fittest books. So uh, a little bit of a fanboy moment being able to sit here with you. How are you today? A little bit sore and sorry, but um, I'm feeling that your life has been not very complete if you think that the <laughs> me is wonderful. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I was thinking back um, when Julia had mentioned, Julia from Unit Nutrition had mentioned that um, we would meet and I was thinking back of my favourite recipes from those <laughs> books and my dad was an athlete, um, a triathlete in the early 90s and, um, you know, growing up I did my first Ironman in 2003 and um, that was around about the time when those books were, were coming out, I think 1999 and 2001. So, um, yeah, it's cool to kind of think back to my time when I was, when I was younger and, and, uh, and learning a lot from you there. Um, you did run the marathon yesterday. Give us the quick synopsis of how that went for you. Uh, a bit disappointing. Um, I wanted to do better. I um, did the first half really well and then I tripped at an aid station and twanged my um, hamstring. So then it was just survival shuffle home. So... Good thing about marathons is there's always another one and I'm hoping that the next one's going to be better, but at least I made it home and I've got a medal to show for it. Yeah, and you did, so put some context on it, you still had a very good time, even though you were hobbling and shuffling your, your way home. I think 3.38 you mentioned. Yeah, 3.38, but I always like to try and go under 3.30, some sort of magic mark. And so far, as I get older, I'm not getting any slower, so I kind of figured by 80 I'm going to win my age group. <laughs> Just outlast everyone. <laughs> that's that's the trick. And see, what I my other um, technique of running well is that the day before you go and do all this window shopping, 
and you look at all these things and you promise yourself, you know, if you meet your target, you can go back and get them the next day. So I can't do that today. I'm here instead. <laughs> <laughs> well, next year. Next year. <laughs> well, next year is the 50th anniversary. Do you plan to come back to Absolutely, New York? Absolutely, yeah. I yeah. love New York. It's my favourite city and it's just a wonderful run. Yeah. Tell me a bit more about your athletic background. You, um, you know, you're obviously running marathons now, but where does your kind of athletic history come from? Oh, my goodness. I'm a very, very modestly... Um, trained and, and talented athlete. I started um, doing Ironman actually. Um, I mean, I'd always done something at school, but then when I left school, I started doing a few fun runs and then um, saw the Ironman and thought, that sounds like something I should do. So I entered the Ironman in Hawaii and, and this is in the days when there was a, a lottery and I got in without even knowing how, um, how unusual or how special that was. And I hadn't done a triathlon at that stage, so imagine your, um, imagine yeah. your debuts as the um, Ironman. And the reason I do it is partly I like to have a challenge, but for me it's all about that N equals 1 experiment with sports nutrition. And so when I find a challenge to um, really push nutrition and its effects on performance, I kind of feel, well, if you've not got much talent, maybe you can do everything else as well as possible and... and um, learn from the experience but um, get the best out of yourself and so I'm hoping that one of the reasons I'm not getting slower is I'm just continuing to use new strategies around science to get the best out of myself. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I feel like sports nutrition and the science in that space is in its infancy compared to sport itself. What has been some of those really dramatic developments over the last 20 to 30 years that you've seen in that space? Uh, Fueling, definitely. So we've gone from a, a feeling back in the sort of 80s that um, you couldn't really take in much during exercise because once you put something in your stomach, it interferes with gastric emptying. And if you're wanting to maintain hydration status, well, then you've got to keep it really dilute. And then there was a whole series of studies in the 90s and, and beginning of the, the century that showed that actually your ability to tolerate and absorb carbohydrate when it's consumed was much greater than we thought and when you're doing these longer events or doing really sustained high intensity events like the two-hour marathon that the mm -hmm. more carbs you can take in during the race to supplement what you've been able to store beforehand really gives you um, the best ability to work at the top end for as long as you can so that was one breakthrough but then almost Opposite to that, there's a new breakthrough showing that you can fuel your brain in different ways without actually absorbing any nutrients to improve performance. And that's really good for some of the shorter events where you're not limited with your muscles fuel availability, but we forget that the brain is what's telling the muscle how mm. hard it can go. And so now there's a whole range of different strategies we can offer that make you just feel better, whatever the environment or the event that you're doing. And it offers so many more opportunities for nutrition during events than we hadn't thought of previously. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to go back. We'll go back to that and touch on that in a moment. But I, I want to hear a bit more of your journey to get in, getting into sports science. How did you kind of find your way there? Was it something you were interested in in school? What was that journey like for you getting, getting to that place? Oh, gosh, I've had the most accidental career possible because when I studied nutrition, um, there was no such thing as sports nutrition. And in fact, I only studied nutrition by accident and because it was a personal interest. And as I was studying it, one of my lecturers was um, 
uh, a marathon runner and I can remember going around to his place for um, dinner he invited the whole class of starving students around to his place and his wife had put on this huge spread and he's just there with lettuce and cheese on his plate and I said to him you know don't you like your wife's cooking and he said <laughs> no I'm, I'm doing a marathon on the weekend and the, the Swedes have just published this paper on this new technique where you can deplete glycogen in your muscle and then replace it in super compensated and it means you can run a marathon faster and something just went off in my head mm -hmm. and I thought well gosh that's that's the angle I love sport and I love nutrition and they actually intersect and so he allowed me to do some some study with him I went on to do a PhD with him after I finished dietetics um, and then it was a matter of trying to convince the rest of the world that there was something and again look just totally accidentally mm -hmm. um, you're Australian, so you know how Australian rules football is, is yep. the life and blood of Australian sport. And I, I follow St Kilda, which is a really unfortunate team that in 120 years of competition has only won the premiership once. And so I wrote to the star player on the team, Trevor Barker, who yep. is a bit of like a David Beckham, um, and wrote a letter to him as a you know, 20 year old saying nutrition is really important for performance and I think this could be the thing that gets the Saints the next um, premiership and you know he must have received I don't know how many hundreds of letters every day from 20 year old girls yeah and he took my letter and he gave it to the team doctor who rang me and said would you like to come down and um, have a play with the guys so how how lucky is that yeah I got my first sort of um, step into into professional sport um, worked with them for a while and then eventually the Australian Institute of Sport um, advertised a position and the rest is history really but it's just, you know it's just a complete series of lucky mm. accidental moments that really consolidated a, a wonderful career. Well it's funny you say that I, f I have a very strong belief that you're in the right place at the right time <laughs> and everything happens for a reason and yeah. you obviously took that opportunity you saw an opportunity took it um, you know, and, and the rest is history. Funny St Kilda story. So I grew up playing Aussie Rules football um, and one of my best mates growing up was Nick Rewalt. Oh, who's, my goodness. Who's Nick Rewalt was my absolute hero. There you go. Yeah. Um, have you met Nick? Oh, well, I work well. You still um, work with the team? No, well, I, I did some work in the 80s and then yeah. um, in about 2006 they contacted me again and said, um, we know you come down to Melbourne for the games on the weekend. Um you know, is there any way that we can use your um, involvement? And um, so I had another three years going back and, and working with them on a part-time basis, and that's when I, I met Nick. Yeah. And he's just a superb human being, yep. wonderful athlete, but a real supporter of nutrition. And as captain of the team, he was really instrumental in making sure that when I came back again, that what I did was really um, appreciated and... Uh, yeah, it was really That's great awesome. fun. Yeah, <laughs> no, good guy. No premiership though. No premiership, <laughs> no. sadly. I was no. a Geelong supporter as a kid oh. and we lost many, many grand finals when I was following them. And then when, when Nick went to St Kilda, I became a St Kilda fan and lost many, many grand finals. <laughs> so I'm still waiting for the championship as a supporter yeah. as well. Um, tell me about your time at the AIS. You, you were there from the beginning or early on, I believe. Yeah. What was that, um, you know, building I guess a program there and you know you put the books out and you work with some up-and-coming athletes and some amazing athletes tell us a little bit more about your journey and your story at the AIS oh gosh it was wonderful when I started the AIS was really new and it had sort of no 
really strict um, guidelines around what it could do other than just to work with athletes and we had um, a scholarship program for 35 sports um, most of them based in Canberra but some at other um, campuses around Australia and I was the dietitian and so you know my remit was to do what I could to work with all these sports and it was just like I, I look back now and think how did I manage it? You know, mm-hmm. the, the, back then the expectations of what nutrition could do were a lot smaller and so um, you were doing that first exploratory work with coaches and athletes and everyone was so welcoming and it was, you know, all such a, a new thing and I was surrounded by terrific people to work with. Um, these days sports become far more sort of organised, if you like, and there's a lot of... Um, structure and, and expectations around what happens and it's it's improved in lots of ways but I really do miss that time where the main interactions are with coaches and athletes and I don't think it's just the change in the AOS I think it's the change in the whole way we live our lives because I, I remember going to, to say a, a camp with an athlete or sport back then you'd go away f- to an altitude camp for a month mm-hmm. and you'd take a book because there was no laptops and emails and all the things that you know take up our time now and so when you were with athletes and coaches you were just with them and you developed great rapport and relationships and those serendipitous conversations you'd have at, at night you'd sort of you know, brainstorm what you could do in the sport to improve it. And so there were so many more opportunities for those just, just little tidbits of insights that mm-hmm. um, made a real difference. Whereas now we're all so busy doing 25 things at the one time and you sort of have to have a workshop to put coaches with you to force a conversation. And it's not the same as just those sort of um, serendipitous, really long-term things. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've, I've loved everything I've done and I still love what I do, but it's certainly different ways in which we were able to explore it earlier on. Do you think that that led itself to those um, bigger gains or those bigger changes happening by being in that environment where you can work directly with coaches and athletes, whereas now it feels like all of the changes we're making are very much more incremental? Do you yeah. think that has something to do with it? Yeah, look, I, I agree with you because um, certainly in the early days there was um, a very low starting point, I guess, and so everything you did was likely to make a, a bigger change. And Australia was ahead of the curve, I think, in trying to be systematic with applying sport science and setting up these... Um, like I think the beauty of the AISN was that it was a... a um, a chronic situation where coaches and sports scientists and athletes were always together and so we got the best out of, of each other and um, now the whole system has changed and and there's some benefits in having athletes and coaches back in their daily training environments but that um, continual interaction is not there mm-hmm. anymore or it's diluted in different ways and so um, I think the rest of the world's caught up and we've probably made a lot of the, the gains and now, you know, everyone talks about marginal gains mm-hmm. and we're looking for these one percenters, which make a difference, but um, they're harder to find and they're sort of harder to prove that they work because there's so much else going on mm-hmm. as well. Tell me about some really memorable athletes or coaches that you've worked with that you know, through Olympic cycles or that have, you know, gotten better results than you thought they would? What are some of those kind of memorable interactions that you've had? Oh, gosh, there's so many. Um, look, even starting back at the very beginning, you know, when I started at the AIS, I was the dietitian and there was, you know, perhaps some feeling of, well, what's this got to offer? And, you know, 
um, we haven't had one before, so why do we need one now? And one of the first coaches to embrace the idea of nutrition was Terry Gathercole, who was a, a swimming coach, and he was um, a lovely guy, really sort of surly, and, and um, we started off as a bit of a love-hate relationship, <laughs> but he was one that gave me my first opportunities to, to travel with sports, and I would have a role managing the, the camp or the... Um, the team so I was sort of paying my dues in one way but it really allowed me the opportunity to um, be with the athletes and certainly enhanced my ability to understand sport and logistics because a lot of people understand maybe a sports science matter but they've got no idea how to roll it out on the mm -hmm. ground and they can either go one of two ways either they can be too officious and try and take over and want it to be all about the science and and then it sort of overplays its role and it makes it just too difficult for athletes to do because you know it's complicated and athletes have got a million things to think about at that moment when they're competing and so it's not really doing the right thing but on the other hand you know sometimes um, the activity just doesn't understand either the rules of sport or the, um, the practicalities of the culture of what's going on and it just simply can't be implemented because it's it's it just hasn't understood what the athlete needs to, to have on the day. So mm -hmm. um, I hope that just that immersion for me in those early days of just living and breathing sport all the time, it might be a, a time intensive and sort of wasteful experience to, to do that, but certainly you know the degree of learning that you make and the ability to sort of have insights about it was really important for me. Mm -hmm. And then going <clears throat> sort of more recently, um, one of the sports that I've been working with most recently is race walking. And if you'd, you'd asked me 10 years ago about race walking, I would have said, oh, what a stupid sport, <laughs> like, like everybody else says. Um, and then I was thrown into working with them and I recognised a couple of really interesting things about it. The first is that um, the athletes and coaches themselves are fantastic and I've had a wonderful relationship with international athletes and some research camps that we've been doing our supernova series but from the race event itself um, the 50k event for men and women is really demanding it's about a three and a half hour for men four hour for women event which is in a really interesting spot in terms of that fueling that we talked about mm -hmm. before but the the way that the race is is um competed they they do it on a one or two k loop because they need to have judges watching the technique and so there's an aid station every two kilometres in a 2K loop, which means that the opportunities for nutrition during the event are huge. It's, you know, um, you look at the marathon and we've got aid stations every 5K, although looking at what they've learned from watching race walking, they're now bringing in, um, for the elite races at least, aid stations more often mm -hmm. as we try and go after things like the two-hour marathon record because... The more frequently you can consume things during a race, particularly when you're doing it on the on the run and you're having to manage juggling, actually consuming as as well as as performing. The more often you can do it, makes the success of the nutrition plan more likely. And so, for me, the experience with race walking gave me that perfect mix of a very nutritionally demanding event with. Uh, a setup that allowed nutrition to be implemented and so I was really lucky to work with um, Brent Valance coach and Jared Talent mm -hmm. in 2012. Um, Jared had been the silver medalist at um, the Beijing Olympics in that event 
and had come to me afterwards and said, look, we think that in the next four years there'll be an explosion in the way that this race is, is addressed and that to do what he had done in Beijing will require a much better tactic. And that was about the stage that this idea of aggressive fueling was coming in and Jared hadn't been a good fueler. In fact, if, if you Google Jared Talent, um, one of the top things that comes up is Jared Talent vomit. And mm-hmm. you can look on the picture and see that in Beijing, as he came into the um, stadium in the 50K event, he was vomiting. Right. <laughs> and as, as he finished, he had a huge vomit, which is not pleasant to watch, but it was a sign that whatever his nutrition strategies were, weren't working because he wasn't absorbing them mm-hmm. and it was interfering with his race. So. To start with him with that background and say, I want you to be more aggressive with what you do in in, um, 2012 was a challenge, but he was a perfect specimen to work with because he was just, you know, completely trusting and confident in the work that we did together. And we really addressed that over the, the, particularly the year leading into the London Olympics, we did a lot of work around the type of feeding, the frequency of feeding and the practice of feedings. We know now that your gut's like every other muscle in the body, it's trainable. Mm-hmm. So the more you do it in, in practice, the more that you learn both the culture and the behaviour, but the more that your gut adapts to being able to absorb nutrients. And so um, in London, we had that perfect day where he just executed the plan right on target and came back with a gold medal. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And I so I um, used to live in Vancouver, so I know Evan Dunfrey, um, well and know that you've worked with him yeah. uh, quite a bit and I follow his Instagram and when he's doing the camps and <laughs> how miserable he is on certain days when there's you know one score of chocolate or things yeah. like that but um, I, a funny story running on the seawall in Vancouver and I was there was a guy ahead of me and I'm like that guy's walking and I can't catch him so yes r- race walking is a funny sport but those guys and girls who compete are absolutely amazing athletes they are phenomenal and I, I guess that's the other reason I like race walking is mm. that um on a good day, I can run with them mm-hmm. when they're walking. And so I've had the ability to spend a lot of time with Jared out in training sessions. And yeah. we literally chew the fat. We you know we talk about how it's going and I can observe the way that he's being able to manage his fueling. And um, for me to just get some insights into what makes these really elite athletes tick has been really good. And, and also they appreciate that, you know, I'm committed to sport as well mm. and that, um, on my modest ability, I can try and get the best out of it. So um, it's been really like it's the experience of these um, supernova camps and the interaction to, with people like Evan has been really great. They've been incredible ambassadors for sports nutrition, and I really appreciate everything they've done to be able to you know bring to the world's attention just how important it's been in the way that they do their events. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a couple of things that come to mind for me is the fact that you are able to take things from a lab and take ideas uh, away and implement them in the real world, I think is really impactful. And I think the fact that you're an athlete as well, you know, builds that relationship with the athletes and they understand that you are not only someone there who's thinking about the theory, but you're actually putting it into practice yourself. Well, it's being generous to call myself an athlete, (laughs) but um, I certainly believe that you have to practice what you preach and you have to think of it through the perspective of an athlete's eyes. And the only way you can really do that is to, you know, to to have that experience yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, and I should talk about 
just briefly the um, the supernova studies because I've just had the most incredible generosity from these race walkers who come each year in January to the AIS and we mm -hmm. do a research camp. And the idea that elite athletes would give up their sort of training and nutrition control and for a month just allow me to be able to work with them. And, and, and it is a collaborative effort. You know, mm -hmm. we don't do anything that they don't have an investment in. They're collaborators, they're co-researchers. You know, we sit down and say, what do we want to find out? And how can we do this experiment so that you will really trust the answers? It's not a matter of they just come in and sort of dial in a performance and we write up a paper and everyone goes happy. Mm. They, they really want to invest in finding out the truth to whatever it is that we're studying. And so we work together to make sure that they'll put 110% on the line when we do any of the testing so that whatever the result is, they know it was real and we can trust the outcomes and, and um, interpretations. Mm -hmm. What do you think is unique about race walking and their, their, um, their interest in being a part of that study? I'm sure that, you know, obviously you mentioned the consistency of fueling and racing, but surely, you know, cycling would be another example where you've got unlimited fuel sources. You can fuel whenever you like. So yeah. tell me why do you think that race walking has um, uh, been able to approach this in the manner that they have. Yeah, look, it's probably place and time. And mm. I was really lucky to have the experience of working with Jared. Um, Jared is hugely respected in race walking. And I think race walkers are just really nice people. They, they um, are very collaborative. They, um, they support each other. It's, as I said, it's an unusual sport. Mm -hmm. and it doesn't get a lot of... Um, a lot of airplay and so these athletes are amateurs and so they don't make a huge amount of money from from what they do and so i think that they're grateful for any help that they get and you know when i put a camp on and, and can look after them for a month then that makes a viable difference to them but i think that we've just built up a, a fun culture and now it's become a thing and i'm just lucky to be the sort of conductor of this orchestra mm. that's really terrific that's really cool there's probably a bit of a chip on their shoulder too they kind of insulate themselves against other people because people think of them as this crazy silly sport so yeah. there's probably a bit of a, a brotherhood and a sisterhood there yeah, with that sport as well probably right um so talk to me a little bit more about um average joe so you know we we're here w watching the marathon yesterday and there's people walking and you talk to people after their races and that you know they messed up their fueling and that's a big thing in, in a lot of endurance sports what are some things that people can take away as average joe weekend warriors that they could learn from your all of your expertise and knowledge yeah i think that people need to look past tweets and 140 characters and just sound bites about nutrition or any aspect of their race preparation, it's really important that you invest in good advice that's personalised and periodised and individualised for you. And so, you know, being able to be part of a group or being able to go have a consultation with someone who can work with you to um, come up with a plan that you practise is really important. And, you know, I really love um, sports nutrition companies or parts of the industry which will invest in trying to promote that message but also, you know, provide opportunities to, to athletes so that it isn't just, oh, here's this latest buzz thing and I'm going to try it on the day or yeah. I'm just going to do it how I think I'm going to do it rather than, you know, really 
invest in understanding how it could work and then following through with the the best way. So, you know, you often hear people having that experience where they've heard about something or tried something. It's not even necessarily new on the day, but it's just not well thought out. And in all the excitement of the race, um, they just completely misjudge their pacing or mm-hmm. what they've... Um, what they're bringing into the race and look 42 kilometers will um expose the cracks i mean the first guy that tried it died so it's not easy <laughs> um and you know it's it's not forgiving you have yeah. to really have you act together otherwise yeah. um you'll cut my cropper one thing you said to me there that stood out was practice and knowing that you know even when you're doing your long runs or your long rides or you're getting ready for your major race you're very rarely are you are you at a pace that you will be in the race situation. So I think the practice part of it is judging how you're going to fuel at that desired effort as well. You know, so many times people say, oh, I did a long run and I took a gel and yeah. that's enough. And then they get into a race and they try and take four gels or something like that. So it's, it really is about good advice, good practice, um, and, and having that translate into that race performance. Yeah, look, I think what you're saying is really important. And I talk to people about you want to have the perfect storm of three things going for you. You want to have something that's going to have a true physiological benefit. You want to have the sort of the placebo effect of it being able to enhance your performance because you believe in what you're doing. And then there's this intangible, there's the whole um, experience that when I work with athletes, I hope I'm working with them to build up Um, like an environment of just confidence and feeling special and so when you can do that and have all those parts going together that's why I like the idea that you you know working with a um, a practitioner or you're in a group or whatever it is so that you're um, building up all those um, experiences you know one of the things that Jared and I always did was we logged every time he did a training session more than 30 kilometers and we logged what happened we did feedback about how much he consumed, how it felt, what the weather was like, what his performance was like. And that was learning that you could go back and objectively look at what was happening. But what I was also trying to create for him was that experience of just feeling like you're accumulating just all the bits and pieces that you need to do a really good job on the day. So Mm -hmm. a lot of it is physiological, but a lot of it also is this sort of psychological preparation where you fine-tune and just get to the point where what's going to happen on the day is just so well thought out for you that you can't help but do a good job. Mm -hmm. Tell me if this has been your experience because it it has been mine where potentially athletes who compete the best may not be the best physiological athletes but they have this unshakable belief and confidence in their own ability that they can perform Whereas you see other athletes who may be more talented, um, maybe don't have that same performance because they don't necessarily believe in their in their talent. Is that something Absolutely. that you've seen? Absolutely, it's just the classic case. It's almost a cliche, isn't it? Now because mm-hmm. um, we we see it so often, and I'm not sure whether it's people who have all the talent um, don't feel the need for the investment and all the other things. They think they can get away with it, and. Even when I look at my psychology, I mean, I, when I'm out on those training sessions with elite athletes, recognise the difference between me and them. Like, I need to go shopping and have incentives to, <laughs> to get me to the finish line, whereas um, 
a really elite athlete is intrinsically motivated and they can just push past the pain in a different way. But um, certainly having someone who knows that the that they're not going to be the best in the world unless they have everything going for them is is um, an observation that, that I see. And look, you know, the people like Evan and people mm-hmm. like Jared, they'll tell you that they don't have the physiology of some of the other elite athletes, but their preparation and their um, attention to detail and then their ability to put a game face on and just get every ounce out of themselves on the day, that's um, really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, are there trusted resources that you could give people that, you know, if they're interested in learning more about a certain, you know, fueling technique or, or what have you, what are some of those trusted resources that you can point people towards? Yeah, look, a lot of, um, there's good books. Um, and these days, um, open access journals often provide a really good resource because they're available in, in the um, public domain and that's often a way of getting really recent information from top researchers and practitioners. Um, but I think if you can get that experience of working with someone yourself, you know, to, to go and see a sports dietitian or a sports scientist and actually have the one-to-one relationship and the ability to do a lot of dynamic interaction. Mm-hmm. That's you know that that's that's terrific, and we spend a lot of time trying to teach our practitioners to be able to represent sports nutrition as well as possible. So mm-hmm. um, there's a whole army of sports dietitians in Australia and in every other part of the world that should be able to help an athlete do their best job. And I'm really proud that my colleagues can you know fly the flag for nutrition and do a great job. Are there any specific questions that someone should ask? So same with coaches, same mm-hmm. with, you know, anything. There's good and bad coaches and there's good and bad practitioners. What would be a couple of questions that people should be asking of that in the beginning of that relationship to ensure it's a good fit? Gosh, that's a good one. Um, I don't know whether, I don't know how you'd ask it directly, but I think I'd like to work with a practitioner who's not in it for themselves. Like it's not all about them and their career and, their celebrity as a, as a practitioner, if you could find someone who's really invested in helping athletes and would like to be in the background and doesn't want to make a um, dependent relationship, I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably sounding um, contradictory to what I said before about, you know, when I work with athletes, I like to <laughs> have them benefit from that environment, yeah. but I also like to be in the background. Like, I don't, I don't want it to be um, all about me. Um, and, and when an athlete wins or whatever I want them to be able to recognize it was their contribution I don't expect anyone to say well I'd like to thank Louise because it wouldn't have been possible without her because mm-hmm. that, that I mean that would be incredibly nice but it would also be incredibly overstated right. so it'd yeah. be nice to find I don't know how you ask that question are you up yourself or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but is, is there a way in which you can find out enough about that person to think what's in it for them yeah and probably background as well. Obviously, you know, same with coaches. There's a million and one of those. Yeah. So asking those questions around the background and yeah. the history and what have they done? What they they've done exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Now, um, you, you touched on a few upcoming or newish techniques a little earlier, um, and I'm grateful for Julia, the founder of Unit Nutrition, for bringing us together. So I want to talk specifically about carbohydrate rinsing um, and that technique and some of the developments that you've seen over the years in in that um in that regard yeah so if we go back to the beginning um 
the early interest in carbohydrate um, really started to push forward because we were interested in the fueling to the muscle. And so the idea was that, you know, if you could get extra carbohydrate during an event consumed, it would be delivered to the muscle and the muscle would be able to make use of it. But it was only necessary in events that went longer than the body's ability to store its own glycogen and have it ready there. So there were so many events where we thought, don't worry about it, you know, you just turn up, do your thing on the day. Um, as long as you've got reasonable glycogen stores, then nothing else needs to take place. But plenty of personal experiences and, and laboratory studies were showing that some of these events, and you could think of like a half marathon or a 40K time trial on the bike, mm-hmm. um, there was plenty of evidence that people did better when they had some carbohydrate during, even though we said, no, but the muscle's got plenty of fuel. Like what you're taking in is so inconsequential compared with what the muscles got. It's can't have any effect. And then Asker Jurkendrup, um, a, a, a Dutch researcher, did a whole series of really systematically elegant studies to take that apart. And one of the studies that he did was to compare what happens when you infuse the glucose into the bloodstream and provide it to the muscle directly, bypassing the gut. And when you did it that way, there was no improvement in performance. So it seemed to be something special about the act of putting it into your mouth. Mm. And of course, if you've had the personal observation of, of doing that, you recognize that you know if you're feeling a bit tired and flat and you have some carbs during the race, you feel immediately better. You don't have to wait until it's been absorbed and taken to the muscle and then lined up to be a fuel source. It, you know, it's instantaneous. So there seems to be something about the act of putting something in your mouth that does something that makes your body feel good. And then people went on to then apply PET scanning techniques where brain imaging was able to look at that aspect and find that putting carbohydrate in your mouth interacts with receptors in your tongue and your mouth and your gastrointestinal tract and it lights up parts of the brain that uh, that operate in the area of reward and well-being and makes them feel good. So it all makes sense that this idea that once you put some carbs in your mouth and have contact with those receptors, like if you swallow it immediately, you're not going to get a lot of contact, but if you can keep it in your mouth for sort of five to 10 seconds, then all those areas of the brain light up and suddenly you start feeling good again. And so that made a good explanation of why people would feel better even though the muscle didn't need the fuel. And then it led to more systematic observations of, well, if it happens once, can you do it again? Like, can, Is your brain like Homer, Homer Simpson that you can keep mm-hmm. tricking it? And it is. You know, so as soon as you put something in your mouth, it gets the light, it gets the benefit, and then 10 minutes later you can do it again, and it's like it never happened before. And so it then led us to understanding that this regular um, consistent intake of carbohydrate and it didn't have to be actually consumed I mean there's no disadvantage to swallowing it in most cases but it did offer then some advantages in tricky situations where you might have an athlete who's not feeling that good in the stomach they've they've been consuming things during the race and they're starting to feel a bit queasy and rather than just not having anything for a period till they start feeling better again being able to just swill it around your mouth and spit it out would sort of allow you to get the benefits from the brain perspective without having to um, threaten the, the gut's discomfort until you can then join it up. And, you know, there's other um, scenarios in sport where we might deliberately try and train with low carbohydrate availability to try and um, increase the stimulus and the training effect. 
but you feel bad when you do it. So you could come up with that scenario where you've got low carbohydrate availability, but you're swilling it in your mouth and spitting it out. So you're not inter you're not interfering with the fact that you do actually want to have low carbohydrate availability, but you're also allowing yourself to train a bit harder and feel a bit better than the, the misery that's normally associated with low glycogen training. So you gave a couple of practical examples there. So, you know, in a race or in a situation where you're feeling queasy and you're not necessarily wanting to fuel anymore or in a low carbohydrate um, training session or things like that, what are some of the other uses of, of a carbohydrate rinse product or something that could help? Um, where else would you see that being useful? Um, well, you can... Add it to the fueling benefits of carbohydrates. So the way that we would change things now is that in the past, we would have said, well, in sport, as long as you get the carbs in, it doesn't matter how you do it. So if we want to target, say, 60 grams of carbs, you can just have it all at half time in a soccer match. And, you've, you know, that's fuel for the muscle. It meets the bill that the muscle's going to have for fuel. So tick. Whereas now we'd say spread it out more frequently so not only does the muscle get that 60 grams of carbs but the brain every time you're putting it into the system is going to get the benefit of the effect making it feel better so that that's sort of a, a different way of approaching that strategy or in a sport where you don't need to fuel so it's a shorter event then you might say well we don't really care about how much you take we just want you to take some carbs and have the sensation of it more frequently so that could be for a lot of the the shorter um, sessions or events of, of exercise that people do and it opens up you know for lots of events you know you might want to be doing a 10k fun run or in basketball or any sorts of those shorter sports where fuel doesn't become limiting but where you can just make yourself feel better and perform better just because you've got the, the brain sensation. It's really interesting, and the more people I talk to about it, you kind of see this lighting up, you know, pardon the pun of, oh, now I understand it makes sense to me, and I think there's a bit more reg um, research and education that's becoming more available to people, but it still feels a bit Kleidenstein. People kind of don't necessarily understand this process. Um, where do you think the, the opportunity is there for more education and more um, availability to come from for this particular process of feeling? Well, I think look, having products that help you do it's useful, but I also think that using them as a, um, a baseline or a, a, a vehicle for being able to do the education around it is really helpful. Um, you know, carbs have got a bad sort of reputation at the moment and, and many of us over consume them in terms of the energy requirements we have and our tolerance of, of carbohydrates so being able to get the best of both worlds where you can get the brain effect without over consuming them for a lot of people could be useful even for someone who's doing exercise just to lose weight I mean it, it drives me mad when you go to a gym and you see people in there and they're peddling at this sort of low frequency and you know that they're just trying to um, get fit and you know they've probably been told by their doctor to go in and um, do some exercise to improve their weight control or their metabolic profile but they're sitting there and they've got 600 mils of a sports drink and they've sort of cancelled out the the energy balance of the session but they feel that they need it because you know they just need the drive to be able to keep doing things if those people could switch to just having the mouth rings then they'd get the best of both worlds where they actually felt a bit better during the exercise session and enjoyed it more but they haven't sort of reduced the um, total physiological benefit of, of doing it by swamping swamping it with carbs 
in sports events, I think the same thing could happen, that if we gave people more education about strategies to you know, consume carbohydrate or just swill carbohydrate over the event and get a better effect out of it, they, you know, it's certainly something new to do and something that they could improve their performance with and then that gets them hooked into continuing to, to look for other avenues or just even to continue in their sport because they always feel there's a PB around the corner if they keep trying new evidence-based ideas. All that's going to contribute to a better outcome in the long term. Uh, what's next? The, obviously, the, you know the developments in that and the, the research and education there. Um, you know, we're coming up to the twenty twenty Olympics, and you know it's a major high water mark for athletic achievement every time the Olympic cycle comes around. So, what's what's next in in sports nutrition? Well, I think the brain's got a lot more that we can do to um, to make use of its power to tell us how fast we can go and how well we can do things. And it turns out that there's quite a few nutrients or other constituents in food that also react with brain's brain function. Um, so we've got menthol that allows us to feel cooler, which could be really useful for a hot environment like Tokyo. Um, there's the bitter sensation that's often used with quinine that gives you that flight or fight experience, um, that just sudden, sudden shock where you sort of find another gear that you, you didn't have. Um, we think that we mouth sense caffeine. Um, and there's probably a whole other range of different nutrients, although there's, there's some involved with um, the trip channel um, activists that, that are involved with cramping. So there are now new mouth rinsing um, products that claim and, and should be investigated further around being able to to reduce the um, the the sensation to transfer to cramping um, in some longer events. So I think, you know, the brain is an untapped um, organ in terms of sports performance. We've spent most of the last 40 years looking at what the muscle needs, um, but we forget that we're whole human beings and we've got a head on top of our muscles and that 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 often directs the, um, the traffic in terms of our sports performance. So things that we can do to exploit the brain and the nutrient interactions with the brain, I think that's still going to be a, a big news concept in sports nutrition for the, at least the next couple of decades. Interesting. Um, what about you personally? What's next for you athletic-wise? Oh, <laughs> more marathons. I really um, I am interested to see how long I can hold my performance um, as I get older and uh, I want to get those um, six marathon major marathon um, targets ticked off so I've still got um, to do Boston and Tokyo to get that that medal and then I'll just um, try and age gracefully <laughs> and get to the top of the leaderboard with some of the age group things oh there's always something you could do um, and meanwhile I've got a, a son who swims and plays water polo and rows and soccer so I've got plenty of um, opportunity to be the parent on the, the sideline and um, working with a really young athlete and, and trying to help them get the best out of their sport. What, um, tell me a bit more about that balance. You obviously, you know, you're busy with work, you've got your own athletic goals, you've got a family, like how do you, how do you balance it all? Mm. Uh, my husband calls me N plus one because what he means is that whatever resources or time or money or whatever it is that I've got, I always do one more thing <laughs> and it drives him bonkers, but it keeps me happy. Yeah. So 
Busy is your balance. Busy is your balance, but trying to be more efficient with what I do and just care about the stuff that's really important and um, recognise just how important family and friends are in, in um, making your life really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, what are some final words that you might have for, for anyone who's listening or watching and uh, you know, they're, maybe they're looking for uh, marginal gain, incremental mm. performance boost, and it doesn't necessarily have to be about nutrition, but maybe some other things that you've learned through your own athletic journey or your, you know, your business journey, family journey that can just help them and give them a little bit of a, a boost as they're, as they're moving towards their next goal. Well, I think two things we've already talked about. is One is that luck plays a huge role in your life, but you've got to be in the position to recognise an opportunity and then to, to be able to run with it. And so I think everybody should have enough opportunities in their life just to um, to look at what's happening and to say, I can go with that. Maybe that's not the plan A that I have, but this plan B is a really good thing and you can invest in it and it, it turns out to be the, the best thing out. Um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, when you get a life where you're able to integrate things that you love doing with something that pays enough money and, you know, keeps you off the street and then... Is something that you can involve all your family and friends with. Like to be able to really, rather than compartmentalising your life, to be able to make it all integrate with all those things that you, you love doing and need to do, um, that's that's the best kind of life you can have. And I've, you know, maybe it's just lucky that I've been able to do it, but um, gosh, I wouldn't I wouldn't want any other thing. And, you know, you could, if you can look back over your life and just say, well, wasn't that fantastic? Um, that's great. Very well said. Um, how can people find you? How can people follow you? Um, I'm on Twitter. I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter. Um, AIS, you can contact me through the AIS. And then um, just look at all the different publications and things that I hope will continue both in sort of the peer-reviewed literature and also some of the just practice practical lay literature. Amazing. Well, Louise, it's been a pleasure. So great to meet you. Thank you for your time today and uh, all the best. I'll be following your journey uh, to the six marathon majors. <laughs> Thanks very much. It's been fun. Well, that was Louise Burke. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I made a ton of notes of further reading and techniques and products I wanted to look into. And I'll share some of those in the show notes for you. If you enjoyed the show, I'd love to hear from you. I'd love if you could go and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure you let Louise know that you enjoyed the episode and send her a note on Twitter. She's super responsive and a great source of knowledge and resources. I've said it before, but I look forward to bringing you more great conversations on a more consistent basis. I have a few special episodes lined up that I recorded earlier this year, which I'll bring out over the next few weeks and months. Thank you so much for listening. Now get out there and embrace the day. Cheers and all the best.